You are listening to the Lima Baptist Temple podcast, where you can hear the latest messages and other conversations as we strive to go serve and love in our communities. If you want to know more about us, visit us online at limabaptisttemple.org. If you've enjoyed our podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on YouTube. Well, good morning, church. How are you doing this morning? Isn't it wonderful, actually, to pull into the parking lot and see cars there now? I think it's great. Uh, Welcome. Uh, I just want to say uh, thank you for allowing me to be here. want to bring you uh, good news and and greetings from uh, my colleagues at Open Doors and also from uh, your suffering brothers and sisters all over uh, the world uh, in the persecuted church. Uh, Thank you to those that are watching online And thank you to the balcony. You know, in my first church, we had a balcony, and everyone would say that I spent more time looking down, and they felt left out. But I don't want balcony people to feel left out. So I I love balcony people, balcony churchgoers. Glad that you guys uh, are here. Pastor Al, thanks for giving me the pulpit uh, this morning. I know uh, sometimes that's a difficult thing to do. It takes a lot of trust in in someone, and so I, I promise not to abuse the privilege, kind of reminds me of this guy that went to uh, the doctor's office to have a mole looked at on his face. He went and he checked in, and uh, he was sent around uh, the reception desk, walked through the door, and he encountered this uh, floor nurse, the, the nurse in charge of the floor. She had this really stern look on her face, and she immediately said to him, I want you to go down the hall, third door on the right, and take off all your clothes. He said, lady, I'm just... Ma'am, I'm just here to get this mole looked at. She said, down the hall, third door on the right, and take off all your clothes. So he, he went to say something else, and she just pointed down the hallway. So he walked down there, third door on the right, walked in, rather sheepishly started to take off his clothes when he noticed this guy sitting over in the corner, quivering with a pair of, had a pair of brown boxer shorts. And he, he said to him, he said, man, that floor nurse is really mean. And this guy looked up and he said, tell me about it. I'm the UPS driver. <laughs> See, some people just don't know how to handle it when they've got the floor. That's the, the, I, promise, I, I promise I'll do you right, Al. I promise I will. Now, Open Doors, uh, we serve the persecuted church. We have some core values, but one of the things that you would notice about us is that we are a presence ministry. We're a people-to-people people. people. We're determined to go to the most difficult places where it is to be a Christian and actually go and just hold hands. We want the people that are suffering to know that the people that are not suffering in the freer context know that they are there, and we want to bring them encouragement. Now, Open Doors is not a classic mission organization as uh, most would think about it. We actually don't send missionaries, and we don't plant churches. Our God-given task is to go to the church where it exists in its context and strengthen it. Our founder, Brother Andrew, we just celebrated his 93rd birthday. He took to heart Revelation 3 and verse 2, which says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So our work is about strengthening the church in the most hostile of circumstances so that the church itself can be edified and so that it can evangelize the lost, which is the purpose and the goal of the Great Commission. 
I want to talk about the Great Commission today, and I'm going to do that in just a moment. But if you're new to the church, or if you happen to just be visiting, the term Great Commission is used to describe our Lord's mandate to the church, which he gave just before he ascended into heaven. It's the church's marching orders. It's our true mission. And again, we're going to look at it here in just a few minutes. But frankly, the stronger the church is in freer context, the stronger the church becomes in parts of the world where it is weaker or under duress. When the church in America in particular is connected to the Great Commission locally and globally, the better off is the body of Christ. After all, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 says, Whenever one part of the body suffers, we all suffer with it. And whenever one part is honored, we all rejoice with it. So the persecuted church needs vibrant, growing, mission-minded churches who can share burdens and encourage rejoicing. Now, make no mistake about it, the Great Commission is all about evangelism. It's about each and every Christian working together to share the good news of Christ's love with every person everywhere so that more and more people might come to God in faith through the cross of Jesus and experience eternal life. The Great Commission was so important that it's recorded in all four of the Gospels, and Luke, in fact, recorded it twice, once in the, in the book after his name, Luke, and again in the first chapter of Acts. But typically, when we talk about the Great Commission, we're speaking about, or we typically think of Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, and that's what we call the Great Commission. And what I want to do today is, if you'll just open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, or if you're younger, just would you open your phone and go to the Bible app or just search for Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20. I want us to just do a very classic Bible study, just an old-fashioned Bible study even. I don't have slides. I don't have uh, uh, videos. I just want us to look at what the Bible says and actually study the Great Commission for just a few minutes, a little bit here, and make an application to all of us here uh, in America, in your church, and also in the persecuted church. Now, frankly, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, or 16 through 20, if you want to start there, are just so rich and so deep, it would take us a long time to unpack everything that is in there. I feel a little bit like the chicken that tried to lay an egg on the California freeway. The rooster said, here's how you do it. You lay it on the line, and you do it in a hurry. That's what I want to do. I'm going to lay it on the line right now and do it in a hurry. Matthew chapter 28 says this, verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. So our Lord's mandate here begins with authoritative power, authoritative power. In fact, if you have a pencil or a pen, would you just circle the word authority, authority in that Bible verse? That word, exousia, 
refers to the right that a sovereign king has. It's the type of right where the freedom to speak or to act as one pleases is fully granted. Jesus said in particular that he has this kind of sovereign authority, this sovereign power in heaven and on earth. Now, during his earthly ministry, Jesus demonstrated his power over disease and sickness and demons, sin. He even raised the dead. But in his resurrection, Jesus demonstrated his eternal power to defeat death and Satan. And beloved, our Lord's sovereign power, um, without it at their disposal, the disciples, the apostles, those early Christians, the Great Commission would have seemed almost hopelessly impossible to them, and it still would to us, regardless of the context. But in the context of the persecuted church, this is especially important. You know, in the persecuted church, we need the Lord's authority, we need the Lord's power just to do daily tasks. When you're a Christian living in China or Iran, and you're living under a surveillance state where they monitor literally everything you do and everywhere you go, you need the Lord's power. Or if you're a Christian living in a country where there are blasphemy laws, meaning that you can't even speak the name of Jesus, you can't wear a cross or any Christian symbol, you can't carry a Bible, you can't tell your next-door neighbor who may be pouring their heart out to you that you will pray for them if they know you're a Christian. That's a no-no, that's a blasphemy, and you're in trouble, and you're going to go to jail. In places where there's radical extremism, like in India or in Buddhist countries, believe it or not, or in northern Nigeria, where, where Boko Haram and others just are cruel to Christian people. I mean, as soon as you're identified as one, you're squeezed and then you're smashed, where you have your daughters who are kidnapped and forced into marriages or forced into sex trafficking, or in South America where narco-terrorists just don't like Christian people at all because they won't work in their drug fields and they won't lie to the police about what is happening. And even in other places in Europe and even now creeping into America where there's a rising level of secular intolerance towards anyone who would lovingly speak the truth that we need the forgiveness of sins and only Jesus can do it for us. We need the Lord's power if we're going to carry out the Great Commission. See, the prince of this world uses his power against those who try to fulfill the Great Commission. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But Jesus, Jesus has authority in heaven and on earth, and he's delegated that authority to us and made that type of power available to all of those who participate in evangelism. Now that power comes through the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us, that he told his disciples, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So effective evangelism is done with the Lord's power, the power of the Holy Spirit, 
for greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And when you do your part to share the gospel and participate in the Great Commission, and when churches are committed to doing the same, the power of Christ is unleashed, our courage is manifested, and miracles occur. When Brother Andrew would first start smuggling Bibles across the, uh, the Iron Curtain, he would often arrive to a checkpoint and he'd have Bibles in his car. And he'd pray for just, he'd take the courage, he'd, he'd just pray for a little miracle. He'd say these words, he'd say, Lord, on earth you made blind eyes to see, and now I pray that you'll make seeing eyes blind. And over and over and over again, the Lord would open a door and he'd be able to cross through and then share Bibles with Christian people who desperately needed the Word of God. Now, in our ministry, we hear a lot of very raw um, acts of violence. We see some really terrible things that are perpetrated against people simply because they love the name of Jesus. But we also witness a lot of miracles, incredible, miraculous healings, radical people coming to Christ, Christians who are in prison but get visited by angels who open doors and release them. I mean, things that come right out of the book of Acts. And it's a wonderful blessing. The persecuted church is a powerful church where miracles happen. But those same things happen in churches like this, too. And they especially do as we stay committed to sharing the gospel. We have to remember 2 Timothy 1.17 says that God has not given us a spirit of fear. So don't be afraid to share your faith, but of power and love and self-discipline. So the Lord's Great Commission begins with authoritative power, but the next thing we see is an imperative principle. The word matheteo, or make disciples, if you look in your Bibles, it says make disciples. That is the main verb of the Great Commission, and it's the central command. It's the imperative command in verses 19 and 20. The root meaning of the term, actually matheteo, it refers to believing and learning and it can only be accomplished by a student who is closely following the example of a mentor. You know, when I was a kid, uh, one of my favorite stocking stuffers was Silly Putty. How many of you remember Silly Putty? Anybody remember that? Oh, man, you young people don't know what you're missing. I mean, now you get all these gadgets, but Silly Putty was great. Basically, you take that Silly Putty out of that little jar and you'd flatten it out, and then you'd go, and let's say you'd take a newspaper, and you could press it down, and you'd have to press it pretty hard. But when you peeled that silly putty off the newspaper, there'd be an imprint. You could actually read that page of the newspaper right on it. Well, mateteo is a silly putty principle. You, you basically have to live in community with people and press up so close against them. That's what the verb really means. That when you peel yourself off them, you leave an imprint on them of exactly who Jesus is. It's an everlasting imprint. It's not just didactic teaching. Learn this, fill in a blank. It's more than that. It's walk with me, stay close to me. Here, watch how I do. Follow me, Paul said, as I follow Christ. 
It's a total surrender to the loving lordship of Jesus, and it's best expressed as Christians live in community. Now, living in community this last year has been a lot more difficult, hasn't it? I mean, it's tough, and aren't you glad to be in church today? Isn't it wonderful to shake a hand, to see somebody's face, to get a hug, to be able to talk to somebody about a burden, to have a prayer request shared? Jim and I were speaking out in the corridor when I walked in. He greeted me. He's a Marine. Ooh, Ross, Semper Fi, brother. That's what I'm saying. Former Marine myself. But as we started sharing a cup of coffee, we started just sharing our family life, and we shared some prayer requests together. And I got a brother I know who will pray for me, and he's got a brother, a new brother that he knows will pray for him. But that only happens when you're in church. Now, one positive thing that COVID-19 did, one positive thing that I can think of from my context is, it helps us relate to the persecuted church better than we ever have before. See, in the persecuted church, it's extremely difficult for people to congregate. I mean, the persecuted church literally is dying to meet together. Over and over, over the last few years, I've talked to persecuted Christians, and one of the things they'd always say is, I don't understand why Christians ever skip church. I mean, when they can barely make it, or sometimes they have to go months, or when they do have to go, they have to go in the cover of darkness, or they have to hide in the basement with all the lights off and just a little candle. And I think we understand a little bit now what it's like for the persecuted church to struggle to assemble And especially when the law or legal authorities tell us we can't. Right? So praise God in that aspect. He makes all things good, right? Praise God we can identify a little bit more. And we should be creative. We should always try to meet together. To meet together. Because we need it because that's where mathéteo happens. Make disciples. That's our imperative. But next look. The Lord gave us actual, actually a strategy. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make disciples. And then he gives us a strategic process that we are to follow to make a disciple. And this is pretty interesting. In verse 19, like I just mentioned, there's one imperative command, but it's surrounded by three participles. And simply put, what that means, the imperative tells us what we are to do, make disciples, The participles tell us how we are to do what we are to do. So notice first that we are to go. We're to go. Jesus said, go and make disciples. That word is a passionate word in the Greek. When I was in seminary, actually just down the street in Cincinnati, I wrote my master's thesis on these four verses And I've studied this word and these words in here inside and out and and have preached on them over the years. But it's really interesting because no matter what language you use or, or the ancient Greek as you study it, here's what this word literally means. It means go. It means go. That's it. It just means go, you know. What it doesn't mean is stay. It doesn't mean stay. Actually, the word might be better translated as having gone or as you are going. As you are going. Jesus made it clear from the very beginning of ministry in the church that we were not to wait for the world to come to us, 
but that we were to take the gospel and go out to them and, and take the initiative. We've been called to be fishers of men. But have you ever been in a church that just stays? You ever been in a church that just stays? All of their program is focused on the fellowship. All the program is focused on the potluck dinners, Sunday school, and all of that. And there's never any focus on evangelism, on outreach. There's never any accommodation for new people. There's no room in a small group for somebody. I've noticed that churches that stay inside all the time, they typically turn sour over the years. I mean, even the best of friends eventually get cabin fever. We eventually, they eventually step on toes. They get on each other's nerves. There's an old Irish ditty. You've probably heard it, but it says, To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be the glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. Right? Do you know what happens when, when, when a church puts evangelism first? When they just take the risk and they say, you know what, we're just going to orient ourselves towards outsiders and we're going to go get them. We're going to do anything we can to bring them in. We'll change whatever method, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. What I've noticed in those churches is two things happen. First, the lost get saved and the saved love each other more. They love each other more. It was Jesus who left the fellowship of heaven to come to earth to seek and save that which was lost. In other words, as we live out our normal lives, we are to be constantly looking for opportunities to make disciples. Now, Occasionally, in the persecuted church, it may look like, like certain Christians or churches are on the run because of the smash that persecution can bring. And sometimes that is true for a temporary time in certain contexts, but nearly always those Christians want to regroup and go. They want to go back to where they were just, you know, smashed and share the love of Christ uh, with those who were persecuting them. A couple of years ago, I was in the Middle East and I was visiting with some women refugees who had been on the run when ISIS blew through their town in Iraq. One of the trends of persecution the last few years has been a heightened attacks on women and children. But what happened to these women was that they had uh, been forced out of their country, literally were fleeing as ISIS was coming down their blocks. They went to a neighboring country or to a country where they really weren't all that welcomed and they were just suffering so much trauma. One of our ministry partners actually has a, has a ministry to help people who suffer the trauma of persecution, in particular women and children. And when I visited them with our ministry partner, they'd been there for several months, and it, they have an amazing ministry they do where they, they do trauma counseling and vocational training and prepare them for, for future persecution as well. So I'm speaking to these ladies, and I asked them exactly what had happened, and, and here's what happened. When ISIS came to town, what they did was they met with uh, Muslims in, in each neighborhood. And they said to those, the, the, the Muslims there, if you will tell us which homes are the Christian homes and mark them, then we will destroy those homes and we'll, you can save your home and your livelihood. 
So these women who are living in these neighborhoods and had grown up with all of these people all their lives had, said, had babysat their children, had been to special events, had shared numerous meals together. Imagine the betrayal they felt when their own neighbors then marked their homes to save their own necks. And now they're on the run and they've lost everything. But when I was speaking to them, they'd been in the program that we had for, for several months, and every single one of them said, we can't wait to go back. We want to go back and tell our friends that they are forgiven. We want to go back and share the love of God with them, the love of the, only one, of the one true God, of Jesus Christ. Now, if the persecuted church can do that, if those ladies can do that, we can walk across the street to a neighbor who maybe isn't a churchgoer. We can certainly reach across a kitchen table and tell somebody that they're forgiven and that Jesus loves them, no matter what the offense has been. Notice, too, that we are to baptize. So we are to go and we're to baptize. And we're to baptize people specifically in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism is a big deal in the persecuted church. I don't want to get into all of theology, but I do just want to point out what baptism means practically to people in places like India or Nigeria or Somalia or Pakistan or Jordan or Syria. See, in, in a lot of different cultural contexts, people, the religion of that context knows of Jesus. They know what he's about. And in some contexts, even, you can sort of learn about Jesus. But what you can't do is cross the line and say that Jesus is the only one. You can't have an exclusive relationship with Jesus. But when you enter the waters of baptism, and when persecuted, new persecuted believers do, it's a big deal because in baptism, everyone knows, all the other religions know, that Christian baptism means a mutual exclusivity. They know exactly what that identification means, and that's when persecution really starts to rise in the life of a new believer in the persecuted church. Now, as Pastor Al mentioned, I have, I have seven kids. I have five daughters, okay? Five. Count them. Five. Five daughters. They are more complicated than my two boys and way more interesting and beautiful, okay? But I could not figure out, once they, once they hit dating time, I, I could not figure out. I, I've got Gen Zs and Millennials. I could not figure out millennial dating, okay? I, I just couldn't understand it. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you how this thing started. So one of my daughters comes bouncing up the stairs, and she's going to head out the door. I can tell she's dressed kind of nice. I said, what are, you, what are you doing tonight, honey? She says, oh, me and this guy, we're going to see some friends, and we're going to go to dinner. And I said, I said well, who is he? He hasn't, he hasn't come to the door yet, and I haven't shook his hand. So who is he? She said, well, we're, we're not boyfriend-girlfriend. We're just... He's just taking me over to do this thing. So, okay. So, <clears throat> they, they, they go, they're off, and later that night, I, I go to sleep, but <clears throat> I'm a light sleeper. 
which is a symptom of having five daughters, okay? <clears throat> it's about midnight, and we're our master bedroom on the first floor, and our, our window faces the driveway. So I get up, and I peek through that window like any good stalker dad would, and, and there they are on the driveway making out on my driveway. Okay? So the next morning, I, I see my daughter. I said, so now, now what's the deal with you and this guy? Are you, now, are you... Are you guys an item? She says, no, we're just hanging out. Okay, that's the first term that I learned, hanging out. I said, well, what is hanging out? So, well, hanging out means we like each other, but it's really open-ended. It's just, we just, we're just liking each other right now. We're just hanging out. I said, well, can you hang out with other boys? Can he hang out with other girls? Well, of course, of course. We're just hanging out. But after several weeks of this, the guy's showing up, showing up, showing up. I finally said, hey, what's the deal? Are, are, are you and so-and-so now? Or are you boyfriend, girlfriend? She said, no, we're just a thing. <laughs> we're just a thing. I said, well, what's a thing? What is that? She said, well, it's more than just hanging out. So it's implied that they're, you know, that we're together when we go places, but but it's still not, you know, it it it's not totally formal. So you're a thing. I said, well, what if? I said, can you have a thing with somebody else? She said, oh no, you can't. You only have one thing. But the door's open if you want to hang out with somebody else. Okay. And when I was dating, it was simply, you, you liked somebody, and you asked them on a date. And then if you liked them after that, you asked them to go steady. That's what we called it. Just go steady. Now I'm hanging out, and I got a thing. So I, I'm like, what's going on here? But I, then I figured out, what, I figured it out. I figured out, the, I figured this out. I'm like, look, this is totally free. This is when you know your millennial or Gen Z is really serious about something. It's the day that you wake up and you got a Facebook notification and you open that Facebook up and she's got a picture of her and him together with a heart on it. I mean, the day you go Facebook official, that's the day you're telling everybody, I'm in love. There can be no other. See, see in the church... We got a lot of people that just want to hang out with Jesus. We got a lot of people even said, Jesus is my thing. Let me tell you something. In baptism, that's when you go Facebook official. That's when you say, I'm in love. It's me and him, and there can be no other. And we are to go and we are to baptize. And if you've been hanging around with the church and you've never been baptized, I just want to encourage you to talk to your pastors. They'll explain this context to you. It's important because Jesus told us to do it. Once a new disciple has confessed Christ and identified with him in baptism, then we are to teach. And I'm almost finished. I mean, <clears throat> the wheels are out and the plane's going to land, okay? I, I promise you. But notice, notice that teaching is done with a specific goal in mind. We're to teach people to do what? To obey. To obey, right? 
Teach them to obey. That captures the essence of discipleship. Now, we should memorize the Scripture. We should meditate upon the Scripture. That's really important. We should pray through Scriptures. But even more important is that we do what the Scripture says. That we live the Word of God. You know, the Bible says that there are those who are always learning, but they never acknowledge the truth. They know, they know the right things, they've memorized the right things, but they never do the right things. And obedience is the key to sanctification. It's the key to becoming a true disciple. The old hymn got it right, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Finally, we see a, we see a wonderful promise And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But would you notice that that promise is part of this whole context of the Great Commission, and that promise of his continuing presence is for those that are participating and obeying his evangelistic mandate. It's a co-mission. So would you share your faith and invite people to church, get involved with missions, support it, Encourage a believer who lives in a different part of the world and pray for the saints of the persecuted church. I have a slide that I'm just going to show real quick and then I'm, I'm going to pray. But uh, if you text this number, if you text, if you text pray to that number, it'll help you, it will be able to introduce you to our prayer app. And on it, you'll get updates. They're actually wonderful. We don't abuse the privilege. You don't get constant notifications. There's no solicitation on it. It's simply to introduce you to the real stories of real people who right now are really suffering and need your prayers. And I would just ask you to engage with the persecuted church through prayer and then really help grow this church through evangelism. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I'm, I'm so grateful for churches like this. I'm, I'm grateful for Mission Sundays and for the other mission organizations and missionaries that are here, for the other 50-plus mission ministries that uh, this wonderful church supports, and I pray that you bless their efforts. I pray that you'd uh, multiply their resources and make this church so strong and so healthy and I pray that many in this city and this town that surrounding this church would just know, just wake up even in the middle of the week and think, I've got to go to that church on Sunday where they're going to hear the gospel as it's, been, as it's being preached from this pulpit and so eloquently sung this morning. Bless Pastor Al and bless his leadership. Give him wisdom and courage a loving heart that overflows with your grace, abounding upon him and abounding upon all those that you have given him to shepherd. Now would you bless the rest of our time today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Lima Baptist Temple podcast. We hope you are encouraged today, and we would love to hear from you. If you have a prayer request, a topic you would like to discuss, or want to share what God is doing in your life, visit us online at limabaptisttemple.org forward slash central hub.